Oh my goodness, that video fires me up. I, I, I didn't need to be any more fired up to be back here with you all, to be studying some incredible text, and then to have a week where I was able to recharge last week. I am fired up enough, but that video talking about the presence of God, that perfectly sets up what we're going to talk about in Exodus chapter 19. So if you haven't yet, get your Bibles and open them up to Exodus chapter 19, and you guessed it, that's what we're going to be talking about, the presence of God. But I wanted just to, to say just a couple things before we move in. There's a couple things to add to, to some announcements that March covered so beautifully. Is I, I want to encourage you, church, to continue to make every effort to stay connected. As I was just praying for you all and seeking God's face for vision into what could be quarter number two or what is quarter number two of this COVID season? I felt like we're, we're doing an adequate job of staying connected within our church family. But what is not happening is being available for outreach into the people who want to be a part of this church family. And so I've just been praying and, and the Lord's been giving me a few different things that I will tell you in the future of how we can continue to be outreach minded. The church it exists for the glory of God to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And so we want to make sure we're also being a part of that. It is possible. We just need to be a little bit creative during this time. And God is is shining some light and giving some vision. So continue to make every effort to stay connected. Get back involved in these post-service Zoom fellowships. We want to see you. We want to connect with you. You are not alone. And then the pastor's office hours, it's not in the bulletin this week, but I, I love that time. But I wanted to serve you. So if there's a time that works better, please let me know. I, I, I absolutely want to be available to stay connected with you. So please let me know. Give me some feedback. I, I want to be there to walk with you and to answer questions or fellowship or just hang out. So I'm, I'm very much interested in that. The other thing I want to do is just give you a little roadmap that, that the book of Exodus is going to take. Exodus 19 this morning, we finished our series last week, the Who is God series, as we work through some different chapters in the book of Exodus. We've got kind of two standalone um, messages, if you will, today, the presence of God next week, God's top 10, which may be two weeks. Give me some grace there. I don't know if we'll cover all 10 of the 10 commandments, God's top 10 next week, but then we're going to start our next series called God's Heart for Relationships, where we're going to take a look at the law and we're going to take a look at the commandments of God. God and how they pertain to our relationships with each other and with other people in the culture and cities and communities in which we live. And I don't think, I don't think there could be a better timing for us to spend some time learning God's heart for relationships with our fellow human beings. So note that read ahead, continue to read ahead, but let's get into it. Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Pray with me as we get started. Father, we come to you yet again, Father, and we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful for your presence, God, your presence that dwells within us, your presence that dwells amongst us. When we gather in your name, Jesus, when we gather and and turn our gaze to your living and active word, Father, there you are. And so I just pray that you'd fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would set aside, even remove some of the distractions that are going on that, that want to take our attention from this moment. I pray that you steady us and you bring a stillness to our hearts and minds as we focus in upon you, Jesus, and we all together say in our hearts individually, Father, speak to us, your servants are listening. Reveal to us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are, and Father, let this not just be information today but let it be the pieces for transformation today and tomorrow and until you come back or take us home. That's what we want, to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we know that is your will for our lives as well. So we humble ourselves before you now and we say, speak, Lord, we're listening. We pray this all together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we open up our study now officially, I want to ask a question. And here's the question. I hope this kind of resonates in your mind the entire study. But here's the question. What comes to your mind when you think about the presence of God? 
Now, I'm not just talking about God's presence abiding in our lives. And I'm not just talking about God's presence amongst us as we gather together in Jesus' name. And I'm not just talking about God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere at all times, that there's nowhere we can go that God doesn't see. He's everywhere. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about literally, physically standing before the very presence of God. What comes to your mind? When you think about that, do you think about Adam and Eve and how when God's presence shows up in the garden and is walking with them, what do they do? They hide. Does thinking about the presence of God make you want to hide? What about Jonah? Remember Jonah? He runs from the presence of God. When you think about the presence of God, does it make you want to run the opposite direction? What about Isaiah? Isaiah is caught up and he's getting a glimpse of the throne of heaven. He's getting a glimpse of the very presence of God. And what does he want to do? He's undone. He's fully exposed because God's eyes like fire are able to see through everything. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Is that how you feel when you think about the presence of God? Just, Lord, who am I? Or what about David? David is going to say, God, in your presence is the fullness of joy. He's going to say, God, cast me not away from your presence. God, I want to stay in your presence forever. I want to eternally be in your presence. Do you think about God's presence like that? Like there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Or what about the apostle John? John, one of the 12 who walked and talked with Jesus, knew and knows Jesus, ate and served with him for the better part of three years. But in Revelation chapter one, verse 17, when John sees Jesus, when he's in his very presence, remember John, he falls down at his feet as if dead because Jesus's presence fully revealed is incredibly awesome. And too much to be able just to stand there without reaction. You think about like that? I think about all of those things. I want you to know that all of those thoughts, in some degree or another, should flood your heart and mind when you think about the awesome presence of God. And all of those different emotions that we see are going to be on display when the people of Israel stand before the presence of God in Exodus chapter 19. So keep those things in, in mind as we, as we apply ourselves to this text. Now, thinking about the presence of God, we want to answer three questions this morning. Number one, we want to know before we come into God's presence, before the people come into God's presence, what does God want them to know? That's question number one. Question number two is before coming into God's presence, what does God require from us? What is necessary to be done in our lives? before we come into the presence of holy, awesome, almighty God. And then number three, what is God's presence really like? We're going to see that in Exodus chapter 19. So let's get started and see what the text has to show us this morning. Exodus 19 verse 1 says this, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now stopping here just for a few minutes to set the stage with what we're going to be talking about. Notice that we're told it is in the third month. You can circle that. It's in the third month. That's important. Remember that they left Egypt in the first month. It was the 14th day on the night of Passover. God rewrites their calendar, kicks it all off to have Passover be in their very first month and marking the time between the events of Passover and the events that we're going to be talking about over the next couple weeks when God gives his law to the people upon Mount Sinai where they are currently camped out now. But I want you to consider this. From the time they left on the 14th day of the night of Passover till the time they arrive here on the first day of the third month, it has been 46 days. Now we're going to see that they're going to be told to prepare themselves for third day, for three days. Because on the third day in the morning, God is going to come down down and meet with them. Three plus 46 is 49 days. 49 days divided by seven is seven weeks. So exactly seven weeks from Passover to this moment is the next feast, which is called 
Pentecost. And God is setting this up. The very first Passover and the very first Pentecost are exactly seven weeks apart. And on the Jewish calendar, we'll, we'll talk more about this. We'll see it in the book of Exodus. That is how they are supposed to be laid out. But what I want us to see and specifically take note of is the fulfillment we see played out in the New Testament. Fulfilling these feasts and these types and shadows we see here in the Old Testament. Several weeks ago, we talked about Passover. and We talked very clearly and in great detail about how Jesus is the Passover lamb. How he is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Takes away, removes them as far as the east is from the west. And then we covered a few, like maybe a year ago, we were in the book of Acts. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that after Jesus, the Passover lamb, crucified on Passover, raised again anew the third day, resurrected. And then what happens? 49 days later, seven weeks later, on the 50th day is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent to empower the church, to initiate the new covenant, to kick everything off, to give the people a new beginning. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment, or or I guess what we're seeing here is the type and shadow that leads to the fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. But I just want you to see that. I want you to see that God's blueprint for what he's going to do has always been found in what he has done. That's why we study the whole book. That's why we can look at it and say this, that the Old Testament, what we're looking at, what we're studying today, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Because the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It shows God's heart. It shows us the big picture. It all connects. And it gives us a greater clarity. But I just want you to note that these timings, these dates, they're important. They're given to us so we can connect dots and see what God has laid out. So here they are in the third month. They're, they're camped here at Mount Sinai. They're, they're at the place where they're going to camp and remain for the rest of the book of Exodus. They're not going to travel anywhere else. You could kind of say, in a sense, the Exodus is complete. They've exited. Now it comes to the point where God is going to show them who they are to be now. Or maybe said another way, they've gotten out of Exodus. God has delivered them out of Egypt. But now he's going to spend some time trying to get Egypt out of them. He's going to teach them his law, how they are supposed to live in obedience to him now. So that's this next section, another new beginning on this first Pentecost, just like we see in the book of Acts. But that's where they are, at Mount Sinai. Verse 3 says this, and Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel." So here's our first question this morning. Once at the mountain of God, once at Mount Sinai, but before they come into the presence of God, what does God want them to know? And that's what he's going to tell him. He's going to tell Moses, this is what I want you to tell the people. And I love that he says, he says, this is what I want you to tell the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. Now, they're the same people, but both of those titles speak of who they were and who they have now become. When he says the house of Jacob, he's speaking about at one time, this was just one, one little family. This is just one tiny household. Jacob was renamed Israel and his 12 sons and some daughters in there. They were just a small little house. But they go into Egypt and they're there for 400 years and they're going to come out as a great nation, the children of Israel now. But when God says this, he says, tell the people who I know their beginning and I know what they are currently, who they are currently are. So he says, tell them. And I just love that because God knows our beginning and God knows where we're currently at as well. God knows our entire journey. So he's speaking into this moment, getting their attention. But this is what he wants to tell them first. He says, you all know because you have all 
all seen what I did to the Egyptians. And notice that part. God says, what I did. Not what you did to the Egyptians, but what I did. And specifically, he says, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you here to this mountain to myself. That's what God is telling the people. But I want you to think about this very, very literally. We're talking about the presence of God this morning. How do the people get to the place where they can stand before the presence of God? Only because God carried them there himself. Please don't miss that part. How do we get into the presence of God? Only if he carries us to the place where we can meet with them himself. We can never ascend the mountain on our own. We can never arrive at the place where we get to be in the presence of God unless he does the work for us. So he says to them, I carried you on my back. I bore you on eagle's wings. I lifted you up and carried you into this very place. And I think that has got to be one of the most beautiful pictures we can possibly have to talk about the work that God does for us. I love that we're, we're singing a song about the shelter of his wings and we're reading a section of scripture that says, I bore you on eagle's wings. But think about this very literally. This is the example of a mother eagle caring for her young. That's the illustration God gave, by the way, right? This isn't my creative illustration. God gave this illustration himself. But those eagles, the, the young eagles, those little eaglets, they're gonna stay in that nest for as many as 100 days, right? They're going to be there for a while, and they would stay there a lot longer if that mother eagle didn't start stirring up the nest, making it a little bit uncomfortable and prompting those little eaglets to want to take their first flight. And I want you to see that's exactly what God did with the people in Egypt. Remember, everything was there. There are 400 years, and for a while, it was a safe place. It was a sanctuary. God uses Joseph to go down there and prepare the way, and then he saves them from the famine there in Egypt. But then it comes a time, God says, Egypt is not the land that I I promised you. Egypt is not the people that I want you to be. You're not Egyptians. You're Hebrews. You're the people who I've called by my name. You're the, you're my covenant people. So what does God do? He has to make it uncomfortable in Egypt for a while. And he stirs up the nest to get the people to start crying out to him where he can actually be that eagle to lift them up and carry them into the place where they currently are. But I want you to connect the dots again here because God does the same thing in our hearts. God allows some discomfort in our lives, Christians. God stirs up the nest in our own lives to get us to do what? To get us to start crying out to him. To get us to start praying and seeking him. To get us to the place where we're uncomfortable where we're at and asking God to deliver us or to lead us or to direct us into a different place. The same thing that we're seeing here. So this is exactly what God does. But with these eaglets, when they, when they first take their flight... The mother doesn't abandon them. The mother, the mother doesn't say, well, I hope you just figure this out on your own. I made you uncomfortable. I want you to go venture off. But, but hey, good luck, right? God isn't that way. The, the mother eagle isn't that way. When those eaglets take that first flight and they start floundering and they don't know where to go, that mother eagle doesn't swoop down and grab them by the neck with one of their talents and say, what's wrong with you? Haven't you seen me fly a thousand times? It's really not that hard. Just flap your wings. She doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He swoops down. She would swoop down and lift up that eagle, that eaglet on her back. Her wings become their wings. Her strength becomes their strength. And she lifts them up and carries them back to safety where they can try it again. That's what God did at the Red Sea. That's what God did at the bitter waters of Mara. And then in the desert when they were hungry and thirsty. And then in the battle where they were attacked by the Amalekites. God says, I'm not asking you to do this on your own. I'm asking you to trust me. Trust that I will be your covering. You can find shelter in the shadow of my wings. You can mount up on my back and soar like eagles because that's what he promises to do. That's who he is. And again, this is God's illustration. But that's how they got to the place where they can even come before the presence of God. So what does he want them to know before they come in? How they got here. I brought you here. And I I want you to know, Christians, every single time we come before the Lord in prayer, we come before his presence, we need to remember that's what Jesus did for us. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life, the life that we couldn't live, fully, fully keeping the law, never breaking a commandment, being sinless. And then he offered that sinless life in our place. Then he died the death we deserved on a cross. Then he rose from the grave. Or you could say Jesus came and bore us on his eagle's wings and carried us into the presence of God. It is through his righteous act. He is our righteousness. When we put our faith and trust in him, that's exactly what he does. He ushers us into God's presence, right? We're hidden in Christ, in Christ, our hope for glory. It's the same illustration. It's the same example. That's what Jesus has done for us. But when we come before the presence of God, we need to remember that's how we get to come at all, Because Jesus did an incredible work. Jesus saved us and delivered us just like God is showing us here through the children of Israel and the great victory that he won for them over the Egyptians and calling them out of Egypt. So just acknowledge that before we come into his presence, recognize that he brought us to a place we could never attain on our own. He brought us a place that we could never have arrived at if he didn't do what he did. It is by his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness and his compassion that he's brought them to this place. So that's what God is pointing out. That is what he's wanting to remind them of. Now verse 5 Let me read it again. It says, Therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, God says. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God's message continues. Moses, I want to make sure you tell them too. I want them to know. I want them to obey me. And make no mistake, this is God demanding nothing less than full obedience here. He says, you shall indeed obey my voice. And if you do that, then this is who you will be. Check out some of these things. He says, you will be a special treasure to me above all people. I want you to consider this. To the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who's made all things and upholds all things by the power of his word. If there is something he treasures, he deems as precious, he values above all others, that is one of the highest titles you could possibly receive. I'm God's treasure? That's incredible. That's what he's saying. I want you to be my special treasure. And then he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Think about that. This is not just speaking of the tribe of Levi who will be the priestly tribe in the nation of Israel. He says, I want all of you, man and woman, I want all of you to be a kingdom of priests. I want all of you to serve me and worship me individually and corporately. I want you to seek me and find me and radiate my goodness to all those around you. I want you to be a kingdom of priests. That's God's will. That's God's heart here. And then he says, I want you to be a holy nation, a light unto all the world, a people so set apart by God's grace, so set apart through God's love, so set apart and uniquely different by God's abiding presence that everyone else will be able to say, that is a holy nation. That is a nation of people set apart by God's grace, love, mercy, his victory. That's what God wants. And that's what he wants his people to know. He says, this is what I want to do for you. This is what I've begun. This is the great work that I've begun in you by delivering you out of Egypt from the Egyptians through all of those hiccups and obstacles in the wilderness to bring you to this place where you were camped at my mountain. This is what God wants to do. And it's beautiful. So when he says, I've set you free from Egypt, he has done that. So they can be the people that they have been called and created and covenant promised to be God's people. He said it over and over and over. I want to deliver them so they will worship me, so they will serve me. I am their God and I want them to be my people. They are my people. But notice this, in this section here, what he's saying is a conditional statement. I want to point two very specific things. It's a first, it's a conditional statement. It's an if this, then that statement. If you obey me, then you will be laying hold of, grabbing onto the very reason behind why I saved you, chose you, delivered you, redeemed you, so you can be my people. 
But just notice that we'll unwrap that more in later studies, that it's a conditional statement, this old covenant. There is a part where the people need to respond in obedience. And you one-year Bible readers, you're reading the book of Romans right now, and you know that they couldn't do it, that we couldn't do it, that the law is ultimately just going to increase the transgression and show us that we can't keep God's law, that we need a Savior, enter Jesus, the one who could. And all that is true and good, and we're going to talk about it. But let's try to stay in context of Exodus chapter 19 and try to see what God is is laying out for the people right here at this mountain. So yes, it's a conditional thing, but I want you to catch the second part that is very important for us to see. Do not miss the timing of this. Do not miss the timing of why God is telling them this now. It's before they come into his presence. It's before they're even given the law, God's top 10 that we're going to talk about in Exodus chapter 20. And it's before because God is telling them the why before he tells them the what or the how. And listen, I love that. I need that. I am somebody who is called a why guy. And if you're going to tell me to do something, I want to say, why? Why do you want me to do that? You're going to give me 10 things I need to do and then 613 things that you want me to do? I need to know why. You've lost me at, you know, the second one. If you didn't tell me why, I'm a why guy. Why do you want me to do this? And this is God's why. Why does God want them to keep the law? Why is God giving them the law? Listen, he says, because you're mine. Because you're mine, the earth is mine, and out of all the earth, I chose you. You are to be my special treasure. You are to be the people above all other people. You are the one that I want to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are the people I redeemed, I bought back, I saved, and I delivered. That's the why. Why do I want you to do all these things? Because I showed you my love first. Because I demonstrated who I am to you first. And the law in its inception, the law at its beginning, the law in its most pure form is just God saying, here's your way to faithfully respond in obedience to who I have shown you I am. It makes perfect sense. Now, yes, we aren't able to keep it, but it makes perfect sense that a God who is so holy and gracious and loving would lay this out to say, but this is why I want you to do it. Think about it this way. God has, has gone through great lengths to show his people how much he loves them, who he is to them. And now he's saying, I want you to love me in this way. I want you to obey me. At its purest form, we say, well, that makes perfect sense. Because how can I be in a loving relationship with somebody if I'm constantly disappointing them, if I'm constantly grieving them, if I'm actively rebelling against them? Right? If I have no desire to keep God's law, it would say that I might not be in a relationship with him at all because I'm doing everything that he opposes. Well, they didn't know that until he gives that to them. But again, just at its inception, we say, well, yeah, I want to obey the one I love. I want to please the one I love. I want to, I want to maintain that intimate relationship. I don't want to purposely do things to hurt that person. No relationship on the planet works that way if we're purposely trying to hurt the other person. Our marriages will not thrive that way. Our relationship with our kids will not thrive that way. We will have no friends if our aim in that relationship is to deliberately hurt that person. And that's all God is laying out. He's saying, here's the way I want to be loved. How does God want to be loved, by the way? What a mystery. Here it is. He wants to be obeyed. God's love language is obedience. And so he lays this out. He's telling them, now that you're my people, I want you to love me in this way. Obey me. Okay, that's what's going on here. Just understand that. But the other part about God's timing that I want us to see, and I want to be crystal clear about this, is notice where they're at when God gives them this conditional statement that if you obey me, then these things, notice where they're at. They're at the foot of the mountain, which means they're no longer in Egypt. They're no longer in, in slaves to sin, in bondage. Why is that important? Because God doesn't show up in Egypt and say, hey Moses, I want you to tell all the people that if they get their act together, then I'll redeem them. 
I don't, I don't want you to go tell the people that they better start showing personal obedience in their lives or I'm not going to save them. God didn't do that. What has he already done? He's already saved them. He's already delivered them. He's already received the blood of a Passover lamb to bring them to the place where they're ready to stand in the presence of God. Why? On what basis? On the work that he has done for them or on the basis of God's grace received through faith. Please understand that it's so important. God doesn't give them the law so they can learn how to save themselves. If personal obedience was required... In order to get out of Egypt, not one person gets out of Egypt, not even Moses. The law doesn't save. The law has never been able to save. God alone saves. God is salvation. We need to understand that. And the timing completely supports that. That's exactly what we're seeing in the book of Exodus. So they're already saved. Now God is saying, but I want to show you how to live now as my people. I want you to see what I desire for you, what I've set you free to be. That's what it's all about. So again, before we get into the performance of whether they can or can't do it, just see at its inception, in its intention, God is just saying, here's what it looks like to be my people. Here's your opportunity to respond in faith, in obedience to what I've already done for you, who I've shown myself to be. I want you to be my people. I've shown you I am your God. So respond to me in this way. And again, the people are going to hear this and they're going to say, we want to do this. But just understand the, the first thing that God wants them to know before he comes, before they come into his presence is remember who I am, remember what I've done, and remember who you are now. So keep all those things in mind. Now, one more little side note here is I want you to see this. This will come into play later and it's comical. But Moses goes up the mountain and down the mountain for the very first time. Moses, 80 years old, Moses, he's going to climb up Mount Sinai. He's going to meet with the Lord. He's going to hear from the Lord. He's going to go back down and give the message from the Lord to the people. So up and down the first time. Verse 7 says, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The heart is willing, the, 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 the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak here. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses comes down the mountain, brings the word of the Lord to the people. They all say, hey, tell the Lord we'll do it. Tell the Lord we will obey. They don't even know what it is yet, right? Isn't that kind of how we are as human beings? We're like, oh, I'll do it. And again, I think that that's good because they're like, look at what he's done for us. Of course, we'll do it. Whatever he says, we'll do it. And that, if you take it at that level, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's just a heart of obedience to a God has won them over by the love that he's demonstrated for them. But what, what, what they're going to say is, is not going to be able to, to be held up. We know the story. We're all, we'll cover this all together. But they do say, we will obey. Tell the Lord, we will obey. So the end of verse 8 says, Moses goes back up the mountain, and he tells the words of the Lord of the people. Verse 9 says, the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to come in a thick cloud. I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to let all the people see me and hear me, see my presence. It will still be veiled. It will still be in a thick cloud. But they're all going to see, and they're all going to hear as God validates this word to Moses, where they're going to see and believe forever that Moses is the servant of God. When we call it the law of Moses, it is rightfully called that because God said it would be called that because he spoke it to Moses and they believe it forever. And just a little side note here, I want you to think about this. It's, it will be from this moment in Exodus 19 and 20, it will be 1,500 years until Jesus comes. And I want you to know that in, in you know 1,400 years post this moment, God's going to do radical things on this mountain. And, and he's going to have two plus million eyewitnesses who are going, going to have seen and heard. But listen, God expects that to be enough for his people to believe that it's the law of Moses, it's the word of God, even 1,500 years later. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus came and walked amongst his creation. Jesus lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, rose again, had hundreds of eyewitnesses and, and millions of life transformation 
2,000 years ago. And it's the same thing. If you ever have that thought and be like, well, what's going on? It's been so long since he's done something like that, since Jesus rose from the grave. Am I still supposed to believe it? Does God still want me to believe it? Yes, he does. Because it was his testimony. It was the revelation of what he does. And we have the word of God to continue to go to again and again and again to know that what he says is true, what he promises comes to pass. The roadmap for what he will do is always found in what he has done. So just think about that. Be encouraged by that. As we wait, we know that God isn't tarry, like he's twiddling his thumbs or finishing his game of bridge. God knows what he's doing. And at the appointed time, things are going to get miraculous again. And there will be a generation who eyewitnesses it, it all, just like we're seeing here. And just like was those who were amongst Jesus when he literally came, literally walked, literally rose from the dead. So keep all that in mind. The same patterns are being laid out. But notice that Moses goes up and down the mountain now for the second time. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not even come near your wives. This is what, what Paul would say, that if you're going to abstain from marital relations, you can do it for a time of prayer and fasting to be focused in on what God is going to do. And that's what he's telling them. Be ready. Prepare yourselves for meeting with the Lord when? On the third day. That should sound familiar. We've got that third day blasted all throughout the scripture. But the Lord tells Moses in verse 11, tell the people to be ready. And I want you to see this, that when it says in verse 11, the Lord will come down. That is capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. That is the great I am, the proper name of God. You tell the people, I am coming down on this mountain in the sight of them all. Now, yes, veiled, but this is very much God's presence is going to come down upon this mountain and reveal himself to two plus million people or a greater populace in Alameda County. Thank you, March, for that little nugget. But think about how powerful that is. This is not just a private conversation between between Moses and the Lord God this time. This is God saying, I'm going to show everybody that I am that powerful, that I am that I am, and they're going to be able to hear me. But when we see this, when God starts to tell him, you tell him I'm coming, I want you to see the tone of everything change. When God says, I'm coming, that should change the posture of every single person who really believes he is coming. And that should really hit our hearts as well as we start to see the times and the seasons and these different things happening all around us. Jesus said, I am coming. I am coming again. And the people here are hearing the same thing from the Lord and they're responding. Now the message is going to be different and we'll talk more about this as we close our study out. But the message to the people this time is tell them to take heed. Tell them to be warned, to set boundaries, to, to, to not come too close to that mountain, to not dare touch it, lest they die. And again, we'll talk more about that as we close out. But this is the very presence of Almighty God, which is awesome and terrifying at the same time. But question number two is, before coming into God's presence, what does God require? As he tells them, on the third day I'm coming, you've got three days to prepare. What does God ask them to do? So two things. First, God tells Moses to go down and consecrate, sanctify the people. And that word consecrate in verse 10, if you're New King James, or, or sanctify in verse 14, it's the same exact word, same, same word there in the Hebrew. And what it means is to set apart 
apart for holy use. To prepare yourself to be in the presence of the Lord. But what's amazing here is that they can't sanctify or consecrate themselves. God commands Moses to do it for them. That's what he says. Moses, you go concentrate, consecrate them. Moses, you go down and you sanctify them. You're going to need to do something, Moses. Moses is our picture for Jesus in the book of Exodus. And Moses is to be this mediator that somehow he's to set these people apart. We're not told how. Does he, does he pray for them? I mean, probably, possibly, strong likelihood. Does he build an altar and make a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to temporarily cover their sins? Again, probably, possibly, maybe. We're not told. But, but what needs to be done to sanctify and consecrate them so they're able to be set apart for holy use and come into the presence of God? Here's the part I want you to catch. They need another to do it for them. All those people can't clean themselves enough. All those people can't cleanse the inside of the cup and dish of their own hearts. All of those two plus million people need a mediator, a forerunner, a high priest in order to sanctify them to where they can come into the presence of God. And that again, I love because that reminds me of Jesus, which is what he has done for us. We all need Jesus to be our high priest and our forerunner and the one who ever lives to make intercession for us and the one who leads us into the presence of God after sanctifying, cleansing, washing us, transforming us from the inside out. So we're seeing the same exact picture here of what God requires then to come before his presence and to still what God requires now for us to come into his presence. We all need Jesus. If we are in Christ, we have Jesus. That is what he has done for us. But just when you think, you're like, okay, great. Now now let's go into the presence of God. I want you to see there's one more thing that God commands his people to do. What is it? It's found in verse in verse. 10, he says, and let them wash their clothes. Verse 14, Moses went down from the people and he sanctified them and they washed their clothes. This is a command from God. I want, I want them to wash their clothes. And you're thinking, well, well that's easy. All I got to do is you know, get the water started and throw my clothes in the washing machine because that's what we do. That is not how they did it then. No washing machines. Water in a desert is, is very sparse. You don't just waste it to wash your clothes. Most people had one pair of clothes and most people didn't wash them very often. So this is a big deal for them to do and it would be quite labor intensive. And they'd have to figure out how they're going to do that. Or you got a lot of people running around naked and that's not what God wants either. But they got to work this out. But what I want you to see is God cleans the inside of the cup and dish of our heart. God changes our heart. God changes from the inside out. But there's still a responsibility for us to clean up what's on the outside. Certainly in the strength and supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, we need to clean up what's on the outside. That is a very responsible thing for God to tell us to do. Now, what does that look like for us? Well, I think it looks like us washing some things away. I think it looks like for us recognizing some of the things that are causing filth in our lives. Some of the things that we let in from the outside that get on the inside and render us from being so willing to come into the presence of God. An easy way to try and think about if there's anything like that in our lives is I want you to think about doing that thing, watching that, engaging with that thing, and having Jesus sitting right next to you. Think about engaging in that with the very presence of Almighty God dwelling with you. If that's not something you'd want Jesus to be a part of, that's something that needs to be washed away. That's something that as we prepare to come into the presence of the Lord, we say, God, just thinking about coming into your presence brings these, these things to my heart and I need to confess them. And I need you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness with which 1 John 1, 9 says you will faithfully do. And then I need you to give me the gift of repentance because that has no place in my life and that is a snare to me or that is a sin that is entangling me and I want that gone because I want to go deeper with you, Jesus. I want to get as close to I can. I won't touch the mountain, but I want to get as close as I can to your presence. That's what's going on here. Wash your clothes. Wash what's on the outside. The people are preparing to do this. Why? Because they want to be God's special treasure. They want to be a kingdom of priests. They want to be a holy nation. They agree 
with everything that God is and they want to grab hold of everything God wants them to be. That's at the heart of why we want to obey. We say it, well, I love because God first loves me and that's true. But I want to obey because he loves me as well. I want to love him the way he wants to be loved. So they're willing to do this. They're going to wash their clothes. They're going to cleanse what's on the outside. Moses is going to sanctify them, cleanse what's on the inside. And now they're ready to come before the presence of God. Remembering who he is, what he's done, who they are now, and acting in obedience to let the Lord cleanse them. Now they're ready to come into the presence of God. So question number three, what is the presence of God like? Verse 16 says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. But when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai and the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against him, against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke with them. So church, try and picture this scene. What is God's presence like? Try to picture this scene. These people are witnessing one of the most awesomely terrifying displays of God's divine power that has ever been experienced. The forces and the power of nature are all slamming against this mountainside. We've got lightning and thunder and darkness and smoke, smoke billowing up like that of a furnace. We've got a fire and earthquakes and then a trumpet that starts with a deafening sound and somehow gets louder and louder and louder. Imagine what this was like. The mountain looked terrifying. The, the mountain sounded terrifying. The mountain felt terrifying as it was quaking. Every single one of our physical senses is being engaged by the one who created all of our physical senses and he makes his presence known and felt and seen. How do the people respond? It says they all tremble. They're trembling with fear before the awesome presence of God. And listen, I don't blame them one bit. I don't know anyone's even standing at this point just trembling i think i'd be on my face trembling curling up in a little ball maybe even crying like a baby i'm okay with all of those things because this is the presence of god we're talking about here but it is appealing to everything now moses is going to lead them out to the foot of the mountain and i would imagine those people walking when you hear that word walking circumspectly and it means walking wisely they are tiptoeing on their way with every step going, this is too close for comfort. Most, you want me to get closer? You told me not to get close. Where's the boundary? This is too close because this is the awesome presence of God. But they all get to the foot of the mountain. Two plus million people. Nobody's missing what's happening here. All eyes are like saucers as they try to take in what is what is unwrapping, unfolding right before them. So it's evident to all of them, God is here. It's evident. God is almighty God. And it is evident God is not silent. God has some things he wants to say. God has a word he wants to speak. And when Moses speaks, God answers by voice. 
Please remember this. They all hear this. They're all going to hear this through the Ten Commandments. We'll see them later say, Moses, we can't take any more. You go talk to the Lord and you tell us. But don't think, don't think it's just a private conversation. They're all hearing God's voice as he reveals himself to them through this moment. It will all be written. It will all be recorded. It will all validate God speaks to Moses. God has spoken to Moses. It's the law of Moses and we're going to remember it forever. That's what's happening here in this moment. But God is just doing this as a precursor to what we're going to talk about next week when he gives his top 10. That when Moses eventually comes down with those two tablets, nobody there is going to wonder, did God really speak that? I mean, is that really God's word? They heard him speak it. And when he brings it down, they're like, yep, we know. That's exactly what we heard him say. There's going, there's going to be no doubt. So just keep all those things in mind. That is the stage that is being set. But that is what God's awesome presence is like. It's awesomely terrifying. It's knee-buckling. It's something that causes fear and trembling. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's considering the awesome presence of God that is being showcased here in Exodus 19 and all throughout the Bible. God is awesome and I want you to see that God is also dangerous there's a danger here where you can't get too close and I want us as we try to close this out I want us to scale back a little bit here because what we're seeing here as we talk about God's presence is we talk about that idea of of which aspect do we want to focus in on. I asked the question when we opened up, what comes to your heart? What comes to your mind? What do you think about when you think about God's presence? And I want to ask you honestly, are you the kind of person that you're like, well, you know what I really liked? Is I really liked the part where we got to mount up with Weagles Ings. Eagles, what did you hear that? Weagles Ings? Yeah, you heard that. Eagles Wings. I really liked the part where God carried me and lifted me up into the place where he wanted me to be. I love that part about God's presence. But what about this part? Verse 12 again says, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. You're thinking, wait a minute, I thought I was just on his back. I thought I was just giving this divine, eagle-like piggyback ride from the Lord God of heaven and earth. What do you mean I can't even touch the mountain now or I'm going to be killed? Look at verse 20, 21. It says, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. How do you reconcile that side of things? Because that's a little bit different than the eagle's wings, isn't it? But I want you to understand, this too is God's presence. There's a fullness here that needs to be considered. I want you to understand that both sides of God's presence are both true simultaneously at the same time. And it sounds like this. If you've ever heard this word, I'm going to share it with you, but this is, this is what's going on. When we think about God's presence, on one hand, we see God's imminence. I want you to say that word with me, imminence. This is the part of God's presence that refers to his nearness, his relatability to his creation, the fact that he hears our prayers, the fact that he takes interest in what is going on in our lives, the fact that he abides with us, he invites us into his presence, This is all that we've seen in the book of Acts. It's all throughout the Bible. It's well into the New Testament as well. But it's it's God saying, I care about you. I created you. You are image bearers of mine. I want to have fellowship and relationship with you. God tells us, think about how radical this is. God tells us, I want you to call me Abba, which means daddy. It doesn't get any more personal than that. Of all the things God could have said, here's what I want you to call me, Mr. Sir, Supreme Almighty God. That's what I want you to call me. It's not a way to call me Daddy. That's God's imminence. That's God's nearness. That's God's relatability. We see God in that light, and we say, I want to approach him. I want to come to him, and I want him to know what's going on in my life. I want to have fellowship and relationship with him, and in Christ we can. But that's God's imminence. But the other end of things is called transcendence. You can say that one with me as well, transcendence. And what this speaks of is God's distance. The distance that God keeps from his creation because of his holiness and his perfection. That's the reason why he has to veil veil himself in that thick cloud. That's the reason why when Moses says, God, show me your glory, 
is you can't see my face and live, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will put my hand over you, and after I pass by, then you can see me. That's God's transcendence saying, I am higher than all, I am over all, I am greater than all, I am in a category all by myself, I am almighty God. And when I'm on a mountain and I say you can't touch it, it's for your own safety because there is a separation between God and his creation. That's transcendence. That's what we're seeing here all throughout the Bible as well. So when you think about transcendence, that's where we have a sense of awe and wonder to the Lord. That's where we are trembling with fear sometimes when we think about the awesome presence of God. So I come back again and say, which one do you err on? Which side do you find yourself dwelling on the most? Listen, as your pastor, it is my heart that you would not neglect one or the other, that you would think about both. There is such beauty in coming to the Lord, understanding both. Now in in church history, the church has often emphasized one or the other. In the, in the early church and kind of the middle ages, you had this huge movement that they viewed God in this transcendent light, that he's too distant. We can't touch the mountain. We can't get close to him. He's too holy for us. And you know what they lost as a result of that? They lost the intimacy. They lost the nearness of God. They lost the, the fact that God says, I want to abide with you. I do abide with you. I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you. And I invite you to abide with me. I'm the chief shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to lead you. They lose all that when you overemphasize the transcendence of God. You never want to approach him. He's too lofty. He's too holy. But then on the other side of things, as we do in our culture, is we emphasize the imminence of God. Our church services are casual. Our church services are less majestic. We don't have ornate cathedrals. We don't look at at God in this high view anymore. And what happens is we've lost the fear of God. And we don't ever want to do that either. We want to recognize both. We want to understand that he has lifted me up and carried me on wings like eagles into his presence. And it is a terrifyingly awesome thing because this is the Lord God Almighty. And the only reason I can be here is because I'm hidden in the rock. Just like Moses, I'm hidden in Jesus. And the only reason I can be there is because he sees Christ in me, my hope for glory. But now that I'm here, I want to have all the wonder and all the awe at the majesty of God and all the gratefulness and the love and the gratuity at Jesus who's brought me this far. That's how it works in a beautiful way where you look at both. God is transcendent and imminent at the same time. They're both aspects about his presence. We just saw that in Exodus chapter 19. And I'm encouraging, I'm encouraging you to meditate on that, to dwell on that, to let the word of God speak for itself as it reveals to us God's word, God's will, God's heart, God's person, and God's being. And we say, God, here you are. And here I am. You are awesome. You are holy. I am not. But thank you, Jesus, for covering my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for clothing me in righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, for ushering me into your presence. But you are so awesome. And you are so holy. And I want to put my hand over my mouth like Isaiah does. I kind of want to run like Jonah, but I want to run because where else can I go? You have the words of life. All of those things should be happening when we find ourselves in the presence of God. And we get to say, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. I want to be in this place. So take all these different things that we've just talked about, apply them to your life, wrestle them out, but don't overemphasize one at the cost of the other. Let God be as full and as high and as loving and as merciful as he is, even if it's more than you can comprehend. If it's more than you can comprehend, it's probably more accurate of a description of who God is more than we can comprehend. Able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. That's the Lord. So even now as we come to him in prayer and we close out our time together, come with a mindset of what he's done to bring us to this place, how he deserves all the glory and who he is deserving all our praise and all of our worship. So pray with me, church. Father, we we come to you in Jesus' name. And I pray even the introduction of that prayer, we come to you in Jesus' name, has taken on new meaning. We come to you in Jesus' 
who has bore us on wings like eagles to even bring us into your presence. And God, when we're here, as we're here, we're so thankful for the work that Jesus has done. We're so thankful that he takes us and and woe are we, but God, you have cleansed us and you have washed us and you've made us white as snow because you paid the price we owed. You rose from the grave conquering everything that contends against us and God, as we're here, we just want to say, holy, holy, holy are you Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. We worship you, we revere you, we rightfully fear you, God. And at the same time, we ask that you call us deeper because we want to know more and we want to see more of you. God, I just pray that you would start a fire in us that could never be quenched. God, it would burn with your eternal flame and it would burn away the things that need to be burnt away in our lives. It would wash away the things that need to be washed away in our lives. God, you would set us free. Who the Son has set us free is truly free indeed. And Father, we want more of you just as these people are presented with this offer. God, we want to grab onto and lay hold of everything that you've saved us to lay hold of, to walk in those works that you've prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So Father, today, in Jesus' name, while we're here in this place, we want to lay aside the weights that are holding us back and ensnaring us, not allowing us to run our race as effectively as we can. We pray that you would take those in Jesus' name. We want to have the snippets come and break the snares that are around our feet. Father, we can all muddy ourselves and we need to be washed and here we are in your presence. Cleanse us, wash us, restore us, gift us with the gift of repentance and lead us into the past everlasting. Eyes are fixed on you, Jesus. New things are being brought to pass right here, right now and we just rejoice over you. Continue the work that you've begun in us. We love you, Jesus, and lift this up in your name. Amen.